Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable, and I have a very special podcast to share with you this week. I recently attended the National Association of Health Underwriters Capital Conference in Washington, D.C., and was able to interview Marcy Buckner, Vice President of Government Affairs for NAHU. This podcast was originally created for members of NAHU and California AHU, but because it contains very important information leading into Super Tuesday and beyond, I also wanted to share it with my listeners. Marcy provides up-to-date information on enforced legislation, proposed legislation, and most importantly, the presidential race. Marcy breaks down the candidates' platforms and how they differ, including their Medicare for All and public option plans, and why those plans would cause major upheaval in the healthcare marketplace. As we head into Super Tuesday and beyond, this podcast is timely and informative, and in my opinion, necessary for our listeners, so I hope you will listen and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Marcy Buckner, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Association of Health Underwriters. Thank you, Marcy, for joining me today and giving us a legislative update. Thank you. So I'm going to talk about a lot of different things today, but let's start with the basics first. Let's start with current enforced legislation, that little thing called the ACA that we're all so familiar with these days. Uh, we know that the Supreme Court has rejected the Democrats' request for um, the court to review Texas versus United States, which is the case that obviously will ultimately decide the fate of the ACA, and they wanted that done prior to the 2020 election, of course. And at the end of December, the Federal Appeals Court agreed that the ACA's individual mandate was unconstitutional. The part that's questionable, of course, is whether or not the individual mandate could be separated from the rest of the ACA. And the appellate court sent back that question to the district court to provide additional analysis. And I know that you're an attorney, so <laughs> bear with me as I ask you these questions. The Democratic Attorneys General defending the ACA appealed and requested that the Supreme Court rule on the law's constitutionality as soon as possible. I know that NAHU is monitoring this closely. Can you provide us with an update on NAHU's concerns about this and what part NAHU can play on it, no matter what the outcome is? Sure, and thank you for having me. We have been following this lawsuit since we had that December 2017 bill that zeroed out the individual mandate, knowing that there was going to be a challenge to that. And now we've seen this go through the lower court and to the appellate court, with the appellate court agreeing with the lower court, like you said, that the individual mandate is um, is truly a mandate, not just a tax, like the Supreme Court originally decided. And so now looking at this as a true mandate, because there is no uh, amount that's being levied if you do not have insurance, which uh-huh. is really where that, that difference was made. Um, like you mentioned, the Democratic attorneys general have appealed that decision that the individual mandate is unconstitutional. And then they've also appealed the decision by the appellate court that the ability for the individual mandate to be separated or severed from the rest of the ACA, the Democratic attorneys general have have appealed to the Supreme Court 
the decision of the appellate court right, that right. that should go to the lower court again, um, saying that the lower co- court basically didn't do their homework right. and provide enough information in the reasoning of why they felt, the lower court felt, that the individual mandate could not be separated from mm-hmm. the rest of the ACA. And it's really that piece mm-hmm. um, that is so important because if we are in a world where the individual mandate is deemed unconstitutional, there there are some concerns about that. We've seen some states that have already stepped in mm-hmm. to create their own individual mandate, which is, I think, one thing that we could see a lot more of. But really, the, the crux of this is whether the entire ACA will go with that individual mandate. And so, like you mentioned, the Supreme Court said they're not going to hear this before the 2020 elections. This means that we're going to go into possibly the 2021 court docket, if the Supreme Court will take it up then, because their decision not to expedite this case before the 2020 elections did not mean that they won't hear it on the 2020 2021 Supreme Court docket. So there's still a chance right. there. Um, but, but, they can't, but they can't count on it. They can't count on it. Exactly. So they may, when they sit down to do their, their docket later in October, they may decide, well, we want this to go, that severability piece to go back to the lower court and have all of this come back through so that we're having all of this come to the Supreme Court at the same time um, instead of trying to determine whether kicking that back down to the lower court is is something that the Supreme Court will uphold as well as the unconstitutionality of the individual mandate. All of that to say it could be a couple of years right. before we see this reach the Supreme Court and have a final decision. So what we're seeing, other than just states putting in place their own individual mandate Uh to try to kind of put a Band-Aid on that, we are also seeing Congress and a lot of campaigning, both in the 2018 midterm elections and now in 2020, with politicians talking about protecting pre-existing conditions and some of those things that I'll, I'll say that people quote-unquote, liked about the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, having children stay on their parents' plan until age 26, right. those sorts of things. And so Congress is, is – there have been some measures trying to um, make sure that those types of things could stay in place if this case does go through and the individual mandate um, it cannot be severed from the ACA if that's determined and the whole thing goes down. But we could – it could take so long – uh, to get to the Supreme Court that it could it is going to obviously be after the 2020 election. Sure. Yeah. So which way that goes with with who's in the White House is is one piece. But it could also possibly take until after the 2024 presidential elections if we have to wait for all of this to go back through the lower courts. So that would mean we would definitely have someone different in the White House. Right. And it's also another f- four years of 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 aging and possible turnover on the Supreme Court bench, right. which could mean a big difference in how it's decided. Yeah. 
nothing confusing about this whatsoever. No, not at all. And I often say, um, I often say I could talk about this case specifically for hours yeah. on end. Yeah. So that was very much a nutshell of, of right. where we are with that and, and what we're trying to track as far as what Congress is trying to do to protect those pre-existing conditions, how that's affecting some of the elections, and then how states are trying to step in and do their own individual mandates and, and their own protections for consumers. Yeah, and so as of now, just the ACA goes on. Correct, correct. So right now, the ACA is the law of the land. Mm -hmm. um, there, the individual mandate has been zeroed out. Mm -hmm. I will not say it's been repealed, so there is zero penalty for not having insurance um, if you're an individual, but the technicality is that it's zeroed out, not that it's right. been repealed. Right. Although in California, as you know, Correct. So we have our own state penalty now, so they always have to make things a little bit more challenging. Very important to point out, yes. yes. Yeah, that's a state situation, though, not federal, so I'd like to make that clear to everyone as well. So let's talk a little bit about Medicaid block grants. Can you explain to our listeners how this would work? and how the grants would have the federal government provide a fixed amount of funding to allow more state control over the Medicaid programs? Sure. This was just announced within the past couple of weeks. And actually, CMS Administrator Seema Verma, who just spoke to our NEHU group here in Washington, D.C. at our Capitol Conference, was with President Trump when he announced the new Medicaid block grants. And this would give really, you set it up perfectly in your question, a set amount to the states for them to determine how to spend it without having a lot more of the federal government control into this. There are a lot of states that are big fans of this. Oklahoma is one of them, where they felt like some of the restraints that the federal government put on them with how they were spending their funds for their Medicaid recipients um, was, was just not suited to the the consumers in their state and the and the beneficiaries of Medicaid in their state. Mm -hmm. So this will allow for states to have a lot more flexibility. Um, they do have to go through a process to participate in this type of Medicaid block grant. So it's not something that just happens automatically. But because CMS has established this, it does make it much easier than um, forcing the states to go through some type of waiver application program, this is a much shorter application to be able to participate in. Okay, great. A huge talking point in Washington, D.C. right now is, of course, surprise billing. Can you update us on this and what we might expect? We have so many bills on surprise billing right now. It is surprising. Yes. It's shocking how many bills there are. And we have been working on this for quite some time and specifically within this congressional session. So we're now in the second year of this congressional session. There has been an even more increased interest in this. And NEHU has a special surprise billing working group that has been watching all of the different legislation that's been introduced. We came really close last summer to having some surprise billing um, actually passed, and then there were some disagreements on exactly what was proposed in the House and Senate, and then there became an even larger division amongst members of Congress, and not even really on party lines, mm -hmm. um, but just on um on, uh, in some cases, personal and professional background preferences. So we say it's not a D or an R issue. It's a DR issue, meaning right. a doctor issue. Yeah. With a lot of those that are in the, the doctor's caucus, so 
physicians that are members of Congress preferring arbitration over a fair market or median in in network rate to be the rate that is used um, for resolving balance billing. And that is what NAHU is in favor of. We are in favor of using that fair market rate instead of using an arbitration system, which we believe in the end continues to add costs um, to, to the consumer. And specifically in this case, with what's happening in D.C., to employers for self-funded plans. Yes, which which obviously I have a lot to say about that as well, because my block of business is uh, a, a large portion self-insured. And we have this all the time. This issue is big, 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 big. And that's their dollars that they're talking about. But they're also concerned because, like I said, in California, the legislation there cut out the self-funded employers entirely. Right. And a lot of states are, I think, seeing the same types of things. So many are seeing that. Texas is the same way. And right. it's because self-funded plans are regulated on the federal level. Right. So Where's the states feet? are unable to do anything. Right. New Jersey and their balance billing provisions allowed for the self-funded markets to opt in. But yeah. who's going to opt, opt in, in to right. that? Right. And so, as you pointed out, it's really an expense to the employer if, yeah. it, if, if it comes down to that. And as we know... As more and more burdens are placed onto the employer, especially expenses, which uh-huh. arbitration is expensive, right. that that cost is just going to be passed down to the consumer, to the employee, and it's going to be become a burden for employers to offer coverage, which is really something that that we are, are against. We very right. much support employer-sponsored coverage. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's always been a huge concern. Um, like I, said, I before I was a broker, I ran a third party administration operation. And, you know, even back in the day, many years ago, we saw it then. But today, compared to what it was then, I mean, it's just I see doctor's offices and, and hospitals and so forth where I believe they actually have staff full time that are, their jobs are to balance bill to bring in more revenue. And right. it's it's crazy. So, yeah, we're kind of up against a, an uphill battle here. Um, but uh, hopefully they can do something in, in D.C. to take care of that. Definitely. And we want to make sure that the patients are are the ones that are being protected and that right. we're not looking out for the, the interests of others that are, like you said, um, putting together a business model yeah. with this purpose in mind. So really looking out for the patient. One of the talking points that we had with all of you here for Capital Conference, mm-hmm. it was um, this infographic, and I can share it with you if you want to post it along with the podcast. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And it shows that anesthesiologists, uh, for example, um, they're out of network rates when they're balanced billing are at about 836 or eight, it's 800 something percentage yeah. of of what a Medicare rate is. Right. Their in-network negotiated rates are, are, are in the 300%. Right. So obviously a much bigger difference there. Yeah. Also special emergency room physicians um, that come in as, a, as an assistant right. in the emergency room that are still doctors, but they are over a thousand percent of uh-huh. Medicare. Yes. Um, so there's it's a just huge astronomical difference. And we really should be working to get to that median in-network rate, that fair market rate that's been negotiated by the, the carriers and the physicians, what's based on that type of provider providing a certain type of service in that geographic area to protect the patients. Absolutely. And again, you you hit hit it right on. The 
where, where we see it most often is, again, the, the emergency rooms, the emergency room physicians, the anesthesiologist in a surgery. I mean, who can pick their anesthesiologist? You can't do right. that. You can't say, I want all network uh, providers. You may start off with all network providers. Or what about lab work that starts off in a PPO lab and then is because it's a specialty type of lab work, it goes obviously elsewhere. And so it happens more frequently, I think, than people really realize. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Well, I know we have limited time, so I'll move on. Uh, although we could talk about could this, talk about <laughs> we could talk about this for a long time. Let's talk about how all of this healthcare stuff can be sort of, you know, changed drastically with the presidential race. Um, we now we've got a lot of things going on between now and the Democratic convention. There were some surprises recently with the Iowa caucus, of course, (laughs) just a few little changes there Um, and the Democratic handling of the caucus. um, And of course, Bernie Sanders and and Mayor Pete came out on top. And then the debates uh, brought life to candidates like Amy Klobuchar and the billionaires. Of course, they're still hanging in there. Bloomberg is is hitting the airwaves like crazy with his TV ads. I don't know how how much you guys are seeing in Washington, D.C. I've seen quite a few since I've been here. But in California, it's like every, you know, commercial, every TV commercial right. that you see for pretty much every show, primetime or, or, or not, um, you just see his ads everywhere. So this is going on. Um, candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden have not had the boost that they wanted, although all of this can change, of course. With the, this is, we've got South Carolina coming up. We've got, of course, Super Tuesday coming up, which, of course, California is a part of now. Um, so can you update us on the race and what it means to our members and tell us a little bit about the remaining strongest candidates as of now anyway, and, uh, you know, their main ideas on healthcare and how they might differ. When we're leading up to, like you mentioned, Super Tuesday in South Carolina, which is where I grew up. So if you hear a little bit of an accent, (laughs) that's what it is, um, tempered with a couple of years in Boston and then over a decade here in DC, but we are are definitely narrowing down here and we're seeing with South Carolina coming up some big endorsements for Joe Biden uh-huh. from from different caucuses there but we're still seeing uh, Bernie Sanders as as the lead here right, and right. of course with when it comes to healthcare he's talking about Medicare for all yeah. and Elizabeth Warren is right there with him uh-huh. um Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, and Joe Biden, they are more focused and talking about a public option. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden talks about this as the public option that was intended as part of the ACA, that this is the next step, that this is what they wanted to have in the ACA, and, and being able to do that now, if he's elected, would just be an extension of that and, and being able to really fulfill the, the hopes and dreams right. of the ACA. But with that, with the public option and, and many people thinking that that is a good kind of middle point between where we are now and going to Medicare for all, it's still very dangerous when we look at, at, at the public option because it would allow for a government negotiated rate within the, within that public option um, to be running alongside and competing with the private market. Mm-hmm. And so we could see a lot of damage done to the private market. We're very concerned about cost and accessibility when it comes to those public options that, that Mayor Pete, Amy Klobuchar, and Joe Biden are looking at. And then when we're looking at the Medicare for All, that is more of a Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders 
flavor. Right, um, right. We're looking at Bernie Sanders' bill that would cost $32 trillion over 10 years. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's $24,000 uh, per household in taxes over the same 10 years. I want to repeat that. $24,000 per household in taxes. That's a lot of money. And I don't think people understand that. I really don't right, think understand right. that. And, and part of And part of that is also... You know, it's not just the increase in taxes. That $24,000 over 10 years does not take into account the fact that there's this assumption on the part of the politicians that, well, if we go to a Medicare for all system and the employers are no longer paying for those benefits, that out of the goodness of their hearts, they're going to give everyone raises because right. they're no longer spending that money on those benefits. Right. We all know that's probably let's, not going to happen. Let's just destroy, you know, the 179 million or so people's exactly that are out there right now that have been working very well. Right. Right. So yeah. for the most part, they're going to be making about the same amount in their salary. They're not going to have that amount in benefits that they're receiving right. in the form of their health insurance coverage. And then you're adding $24,000 in taxes over 10 years. So that's really the, the danger that we're looking at. We, at this point, it's, it, at this point, it seems as though Bernie Sanders, um, is, is the big front runner, but with Super Tuesday yeah, coming up, could everything, everything could change. Could change. Yeah. And it's like, think about where we were with this four years ago, right. specifically on the Republican side. Right. No one would have expected that Trump would have just gone ahead. No one. Yes. I mean, the fact that he, you know, <laughs> that he was the candidate in the first place. And then once he was the candidate, no one, no one thought that he would have a chance of winning. Exactly. So we can't, we can't just, we can't just discard Bernie Sanders and say that he's, you know, he doesn't have a chance because he's, you know, he's, he's running on a socialist platform. Right. Um, I, all I know is that people hear free healthcare and free this and free that, and they jump on that bandwagon without understanding it's not really truly free. That's so that's so important. It's not truly free. And we're also hearing more, like you said, from um, Bloomberg that his ads have picked up. He did his first debate yeah. appearance. He He's scheduled to appear again in his second debate today. We're recording on, on February 25th. There were some thoughts that Bloomberg might decide not to debate again. Right. But after his appearance um, last week, and so, and that he would just let his money talk for him. Right. But he has has actually stepped away from the campaign trail a little bit over the past couple of days, allegedly to work on his debating skills. So yeah. we'll have to see how he does. It's funny how when they're not a politician, they just don't have the debate skills that those politicians who've been doing it their entire careers. Right. They're very polished. They're very good. I mean, they can convince a lot of people a lot of things. And, and it's kind of crazy when you think about it. I want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about this. You talked about the public option. I'd like to hit on one part of that. You, know, you, you mentioned it, but for the listeners that may not understand, why is that? Can you explain why that's bad? Why the, the, the public option, um, how that, when that enters into the system, how that can be an, uh, have an adverse effect on the existing programs? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So the danger with the public option, and we want to be really clear when we talk about single payer, Medicare for all, uh -huh. the public option, universal health care, that these are all different things. And I think especially for California, because we hear a lot in California universal health care, and we've heard a lot of that from the stage, from the debates, especially starting about six months ago when the debates were taking, you know, two or three nights to get through all the candidates. Right. The terms were just being used interchangeably. 
And universal healthcare really just means everyone has access to healthcare. It doesn't mean that that everyone necessarily has it. It just means that the, the access is there. Mm-hmm. Medicare for all is similar to what it sounds like. It's using that Medicare system to provide care for all. And it's not necessarily, it's not one government run provider, which is where we go with single payer, Mm -hmm. because as Medicare brokers know, there are different carriers that participate in Medicare. But the danger with opening that up and doing a Medicare buy-in or a public option where it's not necessarily run through the Medicare system, but it's a a public government-run option that's not just one, but it's an option Uh for consumers to buy into that's negotiated by the government is that those that are already on some of the government-run systems, so if it's a Medicare buy-in and we're opening up the Medicare market for those, some of the proposals are for those age 50 to 64 to buy in or for small businesses to be able to buy in and use the Medicare system. And the danger is that that's adding a different type of risk pool that's already in the market for Medicare. And so it's affecting people that are already on Medicare. It's affecting yeah. people like my parents. Yeah. Um, and 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 you, you usually say, you know, it's not your, your grandma's Medicare anymore. It's not my parents' Medicare anymore when, right. we, when we start doing that. And then similarly with a public option that would not be run through the Medicare system, but it would it would compete with the private market. And again, that's where it's it's very dangerous because the government would be able to negotiate down some of those rates. They would be cheaper. It would be yeah. harder for the private market to compete, right. which some people say, well, so what? Maybe that competition will drive the, the, the yeah. private market away. Is that good if the public option prices are lower? But here is where we may not get the participation in the public option coverage plans by physicians. And so it could drastically reduce access to care quality, mm-hmm. the quantity of physicians that are available. And so that's where we also see dangers in, in the public option um, when it's competing with these private op- with, with the private market and not just on price, but on availability and access to care, right. which is already an issue. Right. It absolutely is. But I want to come back to the competition part of it. Um, who's to say that the government couldn't just hold those rates down ridiculously low where the uh, the you know, the private market can't just can't compete. If they hold them down, prices down, because it's the government, they can. They held it down for a significant amount of time. That would drive out right. carriers. I mean, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to sustain that for that, for that Absolutely. long period of time. It's, it's that slippery slope. It's right. the, the camel's nose under the tent to get to yeah. a Medicare for all. Right. It really is. And I just don't think people quite understand this. They, they, you know, you can read little bits and blurbs in the news on it. Um, you can read a newspaper article if people still have newspapers lying around. I think some people still do, uh, or an online article. Um, it, they just, they only get little snippets. They don't get the whole understanding of the, how the whole concept will work. So I'm glad you broke that down for us. That's very helpful. Um, Obviously, President Trump had a State of the Union address right after the Iowa caucus. He spoke on things like a strong economy, deregulation, tax cuts, trade trade agreements. Um, now that the impeachment hearings are over, he had a lot of positive things going forward to talk about. How do you see the Trump administration handling health care if he were to come out on top of the 2020 elections? And um, also, in his State of the Union address, he vowed to never let socialism destroy American health care. That's one of the things he said. I think American people right now are confused and want some help understanding these types of issues. Uh, what is NAHU going to do to educate 
uh, people on these issues and, and, you know, talk about how the elections can impact healthcare in, in general in the United States. Something we're doing to help educate and specifically educate those members of NEHU, we have our Live from NEHU webinar series. Mm-hmm. The first in that series of Live from NEHU was at the very end of January, right before the Iowa caucus. We have another one coming up this spring that will be a prelude to the um, the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee, um, which... Right now, there are rumors that we could see a, a contested convention on the Democratic side. That was also rumored four years ago for mm-hmm. the Republican convention. I was there representing NEHU when President Trump was given the nomination, although was you know on the edge of my seat to see if there, there would be a brokered convention just for the historical right, aspect right. of this. So we're also kind of looking at that on the Democratic side now. But if we do see Trump come up, come out on top with with this. And it's important to note that NEHU does not endorse any political candidates for the presidency. Um, We do have our our political action committee, but that supports members of Congress only on on that federal level and not supporting any candidates for, for president. But again, we're educating with what's happening on the Democratic primary side with our Live from NEHU series. And then we're also continuing to work with the Trump administration that's in place now to be able to determine what we could possibly see Mm -hmm. outside of this. And what we're already seeing is that we're in the, the, the last of his, of his possible first four years or possibly his last year, Mm -hmm. but in the fourth year of any presidency going into reelection, we normally do not see the administration taking as much action as this administration has on the regulatory side. Usually they slow down a bit. Um, The president's on the campaign trail, which this president is, but usually in that, that fourth year, it's um, it's, they slow down on, on taking administrative action. Also, trying to, to see where they're going to be with what's happening in Congress. And instead, we've seen a, a huge uptick in regulations from yeah. this administration, specifically on healthcare and specifically on transparency. So I think that this president is full steam ahead through the end of the year mm-hmm. and with with his plans that he will come out on top. And I think trying to set up the next congressional cycle and which is also um, a big toss up on how we're going to see the House and Senate majorities, right. whether we're going to see any flips, whether there's it's, thoughts that we could have an even <laughs> split in the Senate. Won't that be interesting? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so a big toss up on on an, on every side. Right. Um, but everyone seems to be really wanting to focus on um, aspects of, of healthcare, including this administration. Yeah. Well, you mentioned transparency. Uh, Trump talked about transparency, prescription drugs, uh, short-term plans, et cetera, in his State of the Union address. Um, obviously, transparency regulations have been released, two sets, a final and a proposed set of regulations, and some have uh, some controversial provisions in them. Um, what is Nahu most concerned about regarding the transparency regulations, and can you talk a little bit about the types of burdens that they put on carriers, and particularly self-funded employers? Again, I'm going to always come back to that because I obviously I work with a lot of self-funded employers. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. The transparency rules are the result of an executive order from President Trump last summer asking for more transparency on a number of different areas. The first area that they took 
action on was hospitals. And this, this rule went through the regulatory process as a proposed rule. And as you mentioned, it came out as a final rule. Mm -hmm. And it would require hospitals to be able to post the costs. And of course, I'm, I'm drastically simplifying this because it was right. hundreds of pages right. long. Right. Um, but to, to post a certain amount of their most frequent um, types of, of treatments um, and even down to some of the, the materials used and things like that. And when we commented on this, we as, as NEHU are very much in favor of transparency. We think that consumers are absolutely should have access to certain data points, but we want to make sure that consumers are accessing the data that makes sense to them, right. that actually helps them make a decision right. about their health and their treatment. And with the hospital transparency rule, what we really saw were some of the requirements that were being placed on the hospitals. And I'm by far not trying to, to sympathize with the hospital systems because I know, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's mixed feelings there. But um, we found that a lot of the requirements were things that the hospital systems just weren't already set up to do right. on a technology basis. And so we asked for a year um, extension in, in the deadline for the implementation of that rule, which was set to go into place January 1 of 2020, right. with the final rule coming out, I think, um, in September or October of 2019. Yeah. So giving which, hospitals just... Zero time. Yeah, yeah weeks even. Yeah. Um, right. Barely, barely able to use months, plural, to prepare for that. So they ended up delaying that, which we were happy to right. see, to give hospitals more time. Again, not that we disagreed with what they were asking hospitals to do, but making sure that they were having time to adequately prepare right. the, uh, those data sets for consumers. And so they delayed it to be implemented January 1 of 2021, which is the same date of implementation for the other proposed rule that we've right. received on transparency, which is the the transparency and coverage or, or price transparency rule. And this is the one that that more specifically affects those self-funded employers mm -hmm. and requires them to provide in real time co-pays, deductibles. And, and, and when I say real time, I mean real, real time. time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and for those that, that, and to have it have it prepared electronically um, for those that ask for it in um, in a hard copy to be able to produce that within two days. Uh -huh. I don't know if any of you have ever gotten anything <laughs> within two days. No. Um, and so we those are some of the things that, that we stepped in and said, you know, this is not something that is, is as easy as, as you're saying. Once again, we support what you're doing. We support transparency and making this data available. But we want to make sure that we're not just looking at price. Are you are you going? Are you prepared to also provide transparency and quality? Mm -hmm. Are you able to provide a little bit more guidance on how employers are supposed to be able to do some of these yeah. things? Because it's also going to be a huge cost right. for compliance. Right. And so asking, you know, how how they really see all of this coming together and whether there was an understanding by the agencies that put this together exactly what type of burdens it was going yeah, to put on the employers burden. and, and yeah. third-party administrators, all of these things. Right. And I think most self-funded employers, when they took a look at this or when they, when they heard about it, their first reaction was, we don't have to do anything because our TPA will do it. Right. And, and a lot of the TPAs. So again, when we're forming these comments, it's when we say NEHU commented on it, it's not just, you know, what yeah. I have thought by, right. by myself. We are reaching out to um, our, our legislative council, our working groups, many 
many of our members. And when talking to them, they say, you know, similar to what you said, well, okay, the, t- the TPAs will be doing this. But then there's that next thought process of, well, the TPAs aren't set up to be able right. to provide this either. Right. And so just thinking even when we think back to the Obama administration mm-hmm. and the employer reporting rules oh, yeah. and employers starting to, you know, having to understand that complexity. It's still confusing. It's it, still yeah, confusing. it's still confusing. Now we're they're getting 226J letters and they don't know what to do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah, yes. it's very confusing. Um, and and we're, we're still lobbying to have, have things fixed on the employer reporting side. And so looking at this and kind of saying, hey, remember what happened yeah. there? Uh-huh. Let's not do that again here where in the name of transparency, because it could also ha- increase a, in, and put a huge cost on employers when they're trying to be in compliance. Uh-huh. And so, and again, when a cost goes to an employer, what happens? It's often passed on to the consumer, the employee, and we see a rise in costs. So we don't want to trade transparency mm-hmm. for higher premiums. Right. And we also want to make sure that as these pieces are put in place, kind of back to when I was alluding to employer reporting, think of all of the TPAs and, and the new companies yeah. that came up mm-hmm. to be able to assist employers right. with doing that. And I think that this could possibly be another area where we see um, these businesses and TPAs being able to, you know, kind of be flexible and, and do some gymnastics to be able to <laughs> help employers comply with this, but they're going to need time to do that. So, yeah. And it's going to be expensive for them to do it as well. It's absolutely. Just like a, lot of, a lot of companies, a lot of third-party administrators, which I work with a lot because, again, I have self-funded clients, you know, they don't necessarily have it in their budgets to be able to do a major overhaul this um, year for a January 1, 2020 right. implementation. That's, that's, that's mm-hmm. a lot of, that's a lot of software changes. That's a lot of different, <laughs> where I don't just don't think that they really understand in Washington what goes into something like this. Right. You just don't. Again, I, I ran a third party administrator for 12 years, so I can tell you this stuff is not easy to, you can't just, and of course that was way, way before the, the high tech stuff, you know, and all this technology today, but um, but still, just working with that, I mean, just, it's, it's not easy. It's just not easy. And, and, and it is costly. And I think they need to take that into consideration as well. Yes, transparency, the idea is great. I think a lot of parts of the, of the regulations are, are well intended and really right. good. But I think they just need to figure out the fine tuning and, and get into the meat of it a little bit more. And I'm really glad that, that NAHU is, is working with, with them on that because, yeah, it's something that I just don't think that they would get on their own. Yes, yes. Again, we want to support them. Mm-hmm. And, and allow for this to be a, a rule, a regulation that works, yeah, and and not one that that ends up being being a failure. We want we want right. to help them to succeed. And this this most recent rule that I was talking about that that more affects the employers, the the coverage and transparency proposed rule comments were due on that at the end of January. So we're expecting a final rule on that sometime this spring. The projected implementation date was January 1 of 2021. And so we'll wait to see what the final rule brings. Well, I I actually hope they, they, although I want transparency, like NHU, I have uh, talked about transparency, how much we need it for for a long, long time. I've always been in favor of transparency, but again, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. So we Mm -hmm. have to take all these things into consideration. With all this political talk, um, I think a lot of people are forgetting the uh, employer-based healthcare system. You mentioned it. We both mentioned it a little bit today. Um, but I think people have forgotten the fact that the employer-based healthcare system has worked really, really well. 
Um, and it continues to work well. And people like getting health care from their employers. And for the most part, most employers like providing that to their employees. Um, it, it keeps them more in tune with their employees. It, it, they can they can fine tune their you know what they want to offer to meet the needs of their employees. And what are the most important things that our members and their clients should remember about preserving the employer-based healthcare system? And as you mentioned, NEHU is a huge proponent of the employer-based system, employer-sponsored insurance. We are a founding member of the Partnership for Employer-Sponsored Coverage, which advocates for some of those changes on employer reporting that I mentioned, but also kind of grew out of some of the other coalitions that we were with that oppose the Cadillac tax and the, and the HIT tax, both of which have been repealed, although the HIT tax is still in place for 2020, just for compliance. Right. want to make sure I'm clear on that, but is repealed from 2021 and beyond. But these are all pieces that were going to drastically affect employer-sponsored health care. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, there's over 181 million Americans that are on employer-sponsored health care right now. Right. And when you talk to those people, for the most part, they like their employer-sponsored coverage, yeah. and and they they would like to continue this plan. It and this is one area where we talk about the employer exclusion a lot as well. Mm-hmm. And so the employer exclusion is what allows employees to deduct from their income the funds which employers provide in the form of health insurance benefits. So it lowers the income of employees when they're doing their taxes, and it also lowers what the the salaries are when employers are listing them out on their FICA taxes. So it benefits both the employer and the employee. And there has been some talk on the Hill. Um, This kind of, this becomes a revolving door of of a hot topic and it's back again um, of talk of capping or repealing the employer exclusion. So, so actually taxing those benefits on employees. And we think if that happens, it could be the largest increase on taxes for middle-class Americans that we've seen in quite some time, that it could be very, very dangerous. And so we really believe that the employer market is is where we see a strong market Mm -hmm. when you compare it to the individual market. And um, and others, you, you we see that they're they're very they're very much struggling. Um, we saw so many carriers drop out of the individual market over the past several years, um, and only recently have seen some starting to re-enter. Especially when we look at even um, the exchange market and the and of course California is a right. state based exchange. Right. But in a lot of states, we, there are counties that are still down to one carrier within mm-hmm. their exchanges. Um, not to say that there aren't more carriers available off exchange in the individual market, but oftentimes it, 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 it is just one carrier and that's really not right. a choice. Where on the employer market side, there is that choice and competition, mm-hmm. which helps to keep rates low and keep folks insured. Mm-hmm. Of course, we want to make sure right. um, the, that we have a robust system and that more that we have more insured than uninsured. And when it comes to the involvement of the employer, this is something that our legislative council vice chair Scott Wham talks about a lot. And, and also brings it into the kind of the conversation of Medicare for all, yeah. where if we go to a Medicare for all system, the employer still isn't going to be taken out of healthcare. There's that argument that that's brought up that, oh, employers don't want to deal with this anymore. It's too much burden. It's too much hassle. They just want to be done with it. Well, at the end of the day, is the 
the bottom dollar of the employer is still going to be hit mm -hmm. if their employee gets sick and because of Medicare for all or a public option, they don't have the right access mm -hmm. or quality of care, that employer is going to suffer for their employee not having access or quality care and being out of the office right. and not being able to, to be productive, a productive yeah. member yeah. Of, of their staff. And so we, you know, we really want to make sure that when we talk about some of these other um, ideas when it comes to healthcare, that we, we really can't take the employer out of it. Mm -hmm. There's there's just no way to do that. Not in this country where we've had the employer be part of it from pretty much day one. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what we need to come back. You, you don't want to you don't want to um, take away the things that are working. You want to work on the things that aren't working. You don't want to get rid of the things that are working very very well. Absolutely. So I guess if that was that if I had one thing to say about it, that's what I would say. And and if in if people were to go out and talk to their legislators. Um, you know, they need to understand that, that how important that ex employer exclusion really is. And I think that yes. we to make sure that, yeah, that people are, are really aware and understanding of what that is all about. So thank you. Lastly, because I know our time is limited here today, NAHU has an employer-based working group think tank. Can you tell us a little bit about that think tank and what the goals are with that? This is the first year that we've had the employer working group. They like to call themselves the EWG, um, the <laughs> EWG think tank. And they are looking at new and innovative ways of bringing reform in the healthcare, health insurance market. And of course, again, looking specifically at the employer sponsored market. Um, NEHU also does have the Vanguard Council that focuses on um, innovation and technology, but this is really trying to get folks together to have discussions. And um, again, we're recording here in Washington, D.C. during our Capitol Conference, and there was a breakout session with the EWG think tank where they kind of did sort of a, a play off of Shark Tank yeah, um, and had folks that were proposing some of their different ideas of innovation. And this was really the premiere event mm -hmm. for the think tank. So they are, um, they're a baby shark <laughs> and that's okay. We, baby sharks grow into big sharks. That's right. That's, okay. that's right. Baby sharks grow into big sharks. So we're, we're really excited about watching them, um, grow, grow out, out of the tank and into the ocean, so yeah. to speak, and to really be able to bring some new ideas, um, to NAHU and to help us to, to spread those ideas and bring them to members of Congress and the administration. Oh, I think it's a great idea. When I saw that, I, I went in the, uh, you know, weekly updates and that sort of thing. I saw that and I thought, what a great idea. What thank a great you. Idea. So once again, I want to thank you very much for helping us today with this podcast and, and for sharing all your wisdom, of course, with our members and, uh, you know, Nahu has been doing an amazing job, and, and I just want to say thank you very much personally because you have been amazing. You've been a great add to Nahu. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you so much for having right. me. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. 
toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.